Hello everyone and welcome to our very first episode of Paw Talk. So for the next few weeks, we're gonna be doing a series on breeds of dogs and then how those breed functions influence dog behavior. But before we get into that, let me give you a little bit of information about myself. So my name is Melissa. I am one of the trainers here at Pausable Angels. I have been training for over 15 years and I have been in the pet dog area, um, doing obedience classes and in-home behavioral consultations and trainings, as well as my start was actually in the service dog industry, which was specifically guide dogs. So I have worked with guide dogs and I've also worked with other service dogs, but I became a certified guide dog instructor from Leader Dogs for the Blind, where I completed a three-year apprenticeship. And then I got a very um, good job, I would say, in England, where I got to live for a year working with guide dogs of the UK. And that's a very tough program to get into. So they accepted me into their program to do a work study or a, just a work work exchange, I should say, there. In the meantime, before I graduated, so this was all right when I graduated college, I got went straight into the service dog field. But before that, I actually worked in Alaska with sled dogs during my summer. It was my summer job through Alaskan ex expeditions, Alaskan ice field expeditions, and I got to work hands-on with sled dogs. So I really got to see pack behavior and learn how dogs kind of interact with each other and interact with us as well. So that's a little bit about me. Um, I do have three of my own dogs at home. So they're all different breeds. I have a mixed breed from a shelter. I have a Newfie Lab mix and I have a Red Healer. So I've kind of got the gambit of it all. But let's go into now, before we kind of break down each breed and what the breeds are known for and how those breeds can affect your dog's behavior, let's just talk about in this first episode, dogs in general and what it is about dogs that make them who they are and why they're so unique and special. Because as humans, we tend to look at the world and our dog's behavior through our own lenses, meaning through our own experiences and how we view the world. But our dogs view the world so differently. So when we can understand how the dogs view the world, their behavior makes so much more sense to us than if we're trying to funnel it through how we see the world. So let's start with the scientific name. So dogs, the scientific name for the species of companion dogs is the Canis lupus familiaris. And I'm probably butchering that pr pronunciation. Um, but the Canis comes from canine. And when it's just Canis lupus, that tends to refer to like wolves. But when you've got Canis lupus familiaris with that familiaris on the end, that's where we get our domesticated dogs, the familiar. That's where that word is kind of coming from. Now, all our domesticated dogs have descended from the gray wolf. And how this happened over time was that 
There was the hunter-gatherers, humans, I would say, and what they would do is they noticed that there would be some gray wolves who weren't as shy as some of the other wolves. Those wolves were starting to approach their camp and were scavenging maybe their leftovers or trying to steal some of their food. They noticed some of them were actually getting closer to the humans. And they started to realize that there could be a real use to having, you know, a wolf in camp. So what they started to do is these dogs who started to become more friendly towards them, they started breeding those dogs. Now, they would definitely try and breed just the dogs who have the traits that they wanted, which at that point was they were adaptable to the human environment. They were not as shy and wanted to seek out humans. And they wanted that kind of companionship. And how that looked down through the line would be that once they bred those two dogs, then that litter of puppies, they would pick out the best traits in those puppies. So as you would expect, that litter was gonna even be a little bit more people-pleasing and people-oriented. So they were gonna pick the ones that were best at that and breed those dogs. And then those who were maybe more aggressive, that showed that more aggressive streak, that showed that, that they were timid around people or didn't want anything to do with people, they wouldn't breed those dogs. And so as you can imagine, over hundreds and thousands of years, breeding dogs specifically for that behavior to be able to adapt to humans, that is where our, our domesticated dog comes from. Now, I would say, you know, this is why I think it's important to understand the difference between wolves and our domesticated dogs as we know them today, because they are not wolves. Yes, they descended from wolves. That was their very first ancestor. Their closest ancestor is the gray wolf. But because we've domesticated them, because we've selectively bred them, they are very far from what the wolf is today. So in a lot of the traditional training methods, you'll hear people say, well, we need to dominate the dog. We need to put that dog in a submissive rollover. We have to show the dog we are the pack leader and we are the boss. And that learning theory all stemmed from wolf behavior. People would say, well, dogs are descended from wolves. Let's watch wolf behavior and let's study wolf behavior and see how they interact with each other and then we can try and mimic that. While there was pro a couple problems with this theory. First one being, we can never do things the way wolves do. Wolves can be, and just dogs in general, they have their own style of communication and it's very different from ours, which we'll talk about in a little bit. They rely heavily on body cues, whereas as humans, we rely mostly on our vocal aspect of our senses. So um, we tend to get motion across through our vocalizations and how we vocalize things. And while wolves do, or dogs and wolves use that, they do it in a way it's more body positioning. And so what came out of this was trying to compare our domesticated dogs with wolves. And that could be further from the truth. So one thing that came out of this was people were constantly told, when you have a young puppy, what you need to do is take that puppy and hold it on its back. Just hold it there because you're showing it that you are the boss. You are making that puppy submit to you. And if that puppy struggles, 
it's being dominant. That's not true. The puppy is struggling because you are now holding on it, it on its back and has no idea what you're doing. Just like if I were to come randomly and tackle you to the ground and hold you to the ground, you're probably gonna struggle because you have no idea what I'm doing. Now this came because, like I said, people were watching wolf behavior and they would see these wolves and these other dogs get pinned to the ground. But what they failed to realize, and I saw this firsthand in my experience in Alaska, was that it wasn't that these alpha dogs were forcing other dogs into this submissive position. Those dogs went voluntarily on their own. So these alpha dogs would posture and would communicate with their growls and show their teeth. And it was the other dog who actually placed itself in a submissive position to that dog. So that is just one example of many of how this trying to compare wolves and dogs and trying to train dogs the way that people understood wolf behavior. This is a good example of how that ended up failing. So let's talk a little bit about the differences between the dogs and the wolves. So our domesticated dogs have been bred to be uniquely attuned to human behavior, whereas wolves are not. They actually have found when they studied wolves that wolves actually will fail to form attachments with humans. So this was done when there was a study and they were trying to train wolves. And the wolves really did not make that attachment to, to the humans. But the dogs, domesticated dogs, on the other hand, do form those really close attachments and close bonds. And they've been bred to be just so in tune with our body language and so adaptable to our environment. Through domestication, our dogs have learned to thrive on a diet of starch-rich foods. So think of your typical commercial dog food that you get that's very high in starch. Wolves cannot, they, they cannot thrive on that. They have to have a raw carnivorous diet. Now, structurally, they're actually also different as well. So it was found that dogs actually, our domesticated dogs, have smaller brains and skulls compared to their the wolves. Wolves actually have bigger brains, and that's because in the wild, they have to be better problem solvers. They have to know how to problem solve to get their food in order to survive. Whereas our domesticated dogs have relied on us for food. They haven't had to have those problem solving skills. So with domestication, it actually ended up where the dog's brains became smaller than wolf, wolves' brains. Along with that, the dogs actually became dependent on humans. So many dogs can't survive without humans. They depend on humans for their survival, where wolves do not. Wolves are very independent. And if you're trying to train a wolf and the wolf gets bored or they think it's too hard what you're asking them to do, they'll be like, no thanks. I'm gonna go get my own food. I don't need your food. And they'll stop working because it's just too hard. They'll just go get their own food. Whereas dogs will just work and work and work for that treat that you have in your hand. And then another example of the difference between dogs and wolves is that dogs actually use play just for fun. 
They play as an entertainment source, but wolves don't. Their play is very intentional and very specific. So with wolves, the during play is when the puppies learn survival skills. So it's not just like a, a fun entertainment for the wolves. It's actually very important to their survival because they have skills that they need to learn for that. So given this, and in light of this information, it makes me wonder, and it might make you wonder, why would we use wolf behavior as a model on how to train and communicate with our dogs? So if communication and training is so different from wolves to our domesticated dogs, why are people using that as a model of how we should relate to our dogs? Well, the answer is they shouldn't. They shouldn't be using that as a model because it's so far from what our domesticated dogs are today. But I do want to talk about one thing that they all have in common. All dogs, wolves, they all have in common a hunting sequence. And this is important because even as dog owners, we will see this crop up in our own dogs. And sometimes it can lead to some behavioral issues. So let's just uh, kind of review the hunting sequence before I kind of break it down. But first for the hunting sequence, you've got eye, where they, they see their prey, they're eyeing it. Then they orient, meaning they orient their body to where that prey is. So if they happen to see that the squirrel was behind them, they'll then orient their body towards the squirrel. They'll start to stalk. They'll kind of walk real quickly and then freeze if they think they're being watched and then walk closer and closer. Then the next sequence is chase. So the chase is on. Then after that, it's grab or bite the, the item. And then you've got either they kill it or they, they'll possess it. And sometimes they'll do both. They'll kill it and then possess it. And this is where they will not let any other um, pack member come close or any other animal come close to their kill. And then eventually they dissect and eat it. So that's what the hunting sequence looks like. But how does this look like for your dogs? Well, it's important to know that our domesticated dogs may not go through this whole sequence, especially the killing part. Some dogs will, you'll notice some of you will be like, my dog gave me a dead rabbit today. Well, that may be true, but not all dogs do every part of this sequence. And some will do some of them. Some are really good at a couple points in this sequence. But let's talk about these sequences and talk about maybe what that looks like in dog behavior so that it might be uh, give you a better understanding of, oh, that's why my dog does that. So the eyeing is just looking at it, looking at the prey. So for those of you who have a very visual dog, your dog just sits on your patio all day and looks and, and tries to look for squirrels or bunnies, and, or maybe they'll just sit at your front door and just stare out. Because that's the first part is just seeing it, looking for it. Now the orientation of the body, that is something that we're just gonna kind of skip over only because that doesn't necessarily have a whole bunch of behavioral implications other than maybe your dog sees something and you don't know what they see. Just look where their body's pointing and you'll be able to probably find what they're looking at. Now the next part of the sequence, the stalk sequence, this is where some dogs can get very OCD. 
So this will be where maybe they love to stock um, your lights, your moving lights, or they're constantly out there stocking and freezing. Every time they get in the backyard, they can't even go potty because they see a squirrel and they wanna stalk, stalk it. Then the next part of the sequence is chase. So these are your runners. These are your dogs who love, love, love the chase. Now it's important to distinguish between those dogs who love the chase and those dogs who love the grabbing part. Now, maybe your dog loves that whole sequence, the chase and the grabbing, but there are some dogs who only chase because they wanna grab it. And these are more your herding breeds. Um, so they don't necessarily as much like the chase, they like the grabbing and controlling part of it. But then you've got your other things like retrievers who love the chase and grabbing it and possessing it. And then you have others that just love to chase. Um, your greyhounds love to chase, love to chase. Um, so with the chasing, obviously this can be where recall becomes a little bit of a problem because your dog wants to chase everything and not come back. Or once they get out of the yard, they just run, run, run because they wanna chase everything in sight. Now for the grab bite part of the sequence, these will be your mouthy dogs. These are your very mouth oriented dogs who always seem to have your hand in their mouth, who always is grabbing at your clothing, grabbing at your kids. Um, they love to have something in their mouth all the time, like a ball or their favorite toy and they just carry it around. It's because this is very high in their instinctual drive. So it's important to note all of this, this part of these sequences is an instinct. It's a deep rooted drive from their instincts. And then the killing and possessing. So this comes out a lot with resource guarding. So dogs who growl when you are coming close to their food, dogs who don't want to share toys with other dogs or other people in the home, that is part of that kill possess instinct. And then dissect, those are my chewers. Those are the dogs who have to chew everything and anything, whether it's paper or sticks or your furniture that's the dissection part and like i said you can see a lot of these in one dog you could see only one or two in your dog but these are needs instinctual needs that the dog has deep rooted in them to do and so they're not always trying they're not trying to be bad when they do these things it's just in them the sequence is in them as an inherited trait Now I wanna kinda move on and let's talk what makes dogs so unique. So I wanna talk somewhat some time about their senses. So let's talk about vision first and what makes their vision so unique. So dogs are best at detecting movement. They are better at detecting movement than we are. But the interesting thing, so human eyes and dog eyes are made up of cones and rods. So rods are what help us see in dim light and cones are what help us see in bright clarity in bright light. Now dogs are predominantly, their eyes are predominantly made up of rods, which means that they are so much better than us at detecting movement 
and having some vision in dim light. Now this does not mean your dog can see in the dark as some people think. Your dog just has better vision at night and can sense movements in dim light better than we can. However, dogs do not have as good a vision in bright light. We actually have better vision than our dogs in the bright, sunshiny day. Dogs are colorblind, but that does not mean they just see in black and white. So dogs can actually see two colors. They can see like a blue-violet color, and they can see a yellow color. The rest of the colors they can't see. Now, interesting about dogs and their, their vision is the way their eyes sit. So our eyes are kind of right in the middle of our head, but dogs' eyes are set more on the sides of their head, so they have a lot better peripheral vision than we do but they don't have as good of depth perception as we do because our eyes are set a little closer together in the front. We have better what's called binocular vision. So we have better depth perception, right? And we can see better right in front of our face, but dogs can't. That's why when you drop a treat, it's like your dog can't find the treat. It's, it's using its nose to find the treat and not its eyes because dogs don't have very good up close vision. They actually have better long range, long range vision and peripheral vision than we do. And then also dogs can't see as clearly as we can. So while a dog can sense movement, they can't see the details as clear as we can. So if you're on a walk and your dog's off leash and they get ahead of you and you call them, they may be able to see your outline or recognize your voice and see like your figure but they can't make out like your face to say oh that's my owner now let's talk about hearing so the ears on a dog they are for hearing but they're also used to show emotions which is really interesting so depending on how a dog is holding its ears or the position of the ears, that will let other dogs know how the dog is feeling, if they're feeling insecure, if they're feeling uncomfortable, if they're happy, if they're relaxed, if they are being aggressive. Dogs do attempt to communicate with us with their ears as well, but we just don't know how to read the dog language a lot of time. A lot of people are not educated on that and what the dog is trying to tell us. Now, besides for feelings, they can actually obviously hear sounds. And what's interesting about the dog's ears is that, that the ears can move in different positions and they can move independently of one another, meaning the right ear can move into a different direction than the left ear is moving. And this lets them locate sounds. So they know if the sound is coming behind them, in front of them, and they can take in a lot of different sounds at once and know exactly where that sound direction, that sound is coming from. They also can hear at higher frequencies than we can, which makes sense because a lot of dog whistles out there we cannot hear, but you blow it and your dog can hear it. So they have a wider range of frequencies that they can hear. And what's interesting about this is sounds that we hear as loud noises that might startle our dog. You might find that interesting because you think, man, 
My dog can sleep through an action-packed movie that's loud in our house. But then something drops and we're at Lowe's and the dog freaks out. Well, it's because that loud, loud sound, it's not the loudness that they're responding to. It's that loud sounds actually are high on frequency. So the dog is actually scared of the frequency that they're hearing of that loud sound and not actually the volume of that sound. And because of this and because dogs can hear at different frequencies, it can be very noisy for a dog even at night and even when it seems to us that everything is quiet. So for instance, dogs can hear the resonator that is inside an alarm, a digital alarm to make it work. Dogs can hear the humming of that, that like crystal resonator. They can also hear the body vibrations of termites, which is really gross, I know. But that's how sensitive they are. So you may not hear anything and your dog might be being really reactive at night or can't seem to settle down at night. And you may want to consider that they are probably hearing something that you are not. Okay, let's talk about smell next. Now, smell is actually one of the dog's most refined senses and it's what they use the most to interact with their world. Their vision is actually probably one of the senses that they don't rely on as much because it's one of their weaker senses, vision is. But smell is one of their strongest senses. So dogs have 300 million olfactory receptors in their nose. You know how many humans have? We have six million. So if you think we can smell good at with having six million receptors, think about how good your dog can smell because they have 300 million olfactory receptors. They've also found that, so each of our brains in humans and dogs, when we smell something, it activates a specific part of our brain. Well, they found that in dogs, that part that analyzes smells is 40 times greater than ours. So dogs can get so much more information from a single smell than we can. We smell something and say, oh, that's gross. Oh, that smells like diesel or ooh, food, that smells good. But dogs can get so much more information and that's why to them, they're very attracted to new and interesting odors because they can smell just in general. So they can smell if you're going on a walk and another dog has peed in a location, we might be able to smell and say, oh, a dog peed there. But remember, the dog, first off, has more olfactory receptors than us. And two, their brain that processes, the part of the brain that processes those smells is way bigger than ours. So what they're getting from that smell is, oh, a dog. But hey, I know now, after smelling this spot, this is a female dog, eh, about three years old. And you know what? She's pretty submissive. They can get all of that just from sniffing like another dog's butt or sniffing where another dog has peed or pooped. And to kind of put this in context, our dog, so if we were to put a single drop of liquid in a combined 20 Olympic size pools, so if we combined all the water and the size of 20 Olympic size pools and put one single drop of liquid in there, the dog could smell that one drop of liquid. 
and the dog's noses are actually constructed different than ours. So our nose, we breathe and smell through the same opening. Dogs actually, when they breathe in, they can exhale through a slit on their nose that is not the same opening of that they're breathing in, which means dogs are able to smell and breathe independently of one another so they can actually be smelling continuously all day long without any interruptions. For us to smell, we smell, but then to breathe, we have to exhale through that nose and we exhale some of that smell out. Dogs don't actually. So when they breathe in and then they exhale through a different slit on the corner of their nose, that's actually pushing that um, smell further back into their olfactory senses, which makes sense when you're trying to go on a walk and your dog is stuck sniffing and you can't seem to get your dog's nose off the ground. That's why. Let's move on to taste and how dogs tend to taste. So dogs have about 1,700 taste buds in their mouth. To put that in context, we have 9,000. So dogs do not taste as well as we do. They can taste the sweet, salty, sour, and bitter foods, but they, they don't have as clear of a picture of taste as we do. And this would be why sometimes our dogs eat really gross things, or if you've ever eaten a dog biscuit, which I have, it's gross. It's very bland and it tastes gross. When I was a kid, we had mint doggy biscuits and I thought, well, they must taste like mint, like Girl Scout cookies, mint chocolate Girl Scout cookies. And me and my sister went in a closet and ate one and they did not taste like mint at all. Well, dogs taste buds, they don't have as many taste buds. So they actually do okay with bland food where we need more of a variety of food and taste. And that's also why your dog can just eat the same food over and over. People tend to think they have to keep changing up their dog's food because my dog, man, my dog's gonna get bored with this food. I don't like to eat the same thing every day. My dog wouldn't like to eat the same thing every day. Well, your dog doesn't mind as much because they don't have as many taste buds in their mouth as we do. So their palate isn't as refined and they're okay eating the same thing every day. Now, with dogs though, because they have so much fewer taste buds than we do, their main sense of taste actually comes through their sense of smell. And just like us, you know, our sense of smell influences our, our taste. So we smell something as we're tasting it. Well, dogs do too, but because their sense of smell is so much greater than the number of taste buds they have, they kind of use their sense of smell to compensate for that. And that would be why your dog is typically attracted to those stronger smells. So those treats that smell horrible and make your hands smell horrible, or they love when you open a can of tuna. Well, that's why it's that that strong smell attracts them because that helps them taste better. Now let's move on to touch. So touch the sense of touch is actually most closely related to our sense of touch so out of all the senses touch is the one that's most closely related to us touch actually helps dogs develop social bonds 
which is really interesting. Now dogs have something we do not have and that is whiskers. They have whiskers on their face. And what these whiskers do is they actually change the, it detects changes in the airflow around an object. So it helps the dog know if something's coming at their face. Because if you remember, that dogs don't have very good up close vision. So these whiskers help alert them to danger that's coming at them real quick in their face before maybe they can actually see what it is. And one thing to note about touch is that the spine and the tail are the most sensitive areas in a dog. So this might be why you, when your child grabs your dog's tail, they growl at them because that's one of the most sensitive areas of touch the dog has on its body. Same thing with the spine. If you've got a kid who tries to climb on your dog and ride your dog and the dog snaps or wants to bite your kid, it's because that's one of the most sensitive areas of a dog. And one last thing about what dogs can sense, and I find this fascinating, is that dogs, and they've done a study and have proven that dogs can actually sense the Earth's magnetic field. What they're unclear about is if the dog can actually just sense it or can they see it as well. But there's no doubt about it that a dog's behavior is influenced by the Earth's magnetic fields. And what they found specifically on this, so for instance, when the magnetic fields are calm and the conditions for the magnetic fields are calm, they found that the dog will actually poop and pee along a north-south axis. So that's how they found this out, that without fail, when the magnetic field conditions were calm, the dogs would always eliminate on a north-south axis, and they would avoid the east-west axis at all costs. But when the magnetic field is unstable, then they really don't have any preference. They'll defecate on an east-west, north-south. They don't really have any preference. But what this means in the scheme of things is that if dogs can actually sense magnetic fields, they have a built-in compass because that's what compasses do. Compasses are objects that can sense the Earth's magnetic field to tell you which direction you're going. And this explains a lot why dogs are so good with homing skills and being able to find their way home after they get lost or after an accident. Um, with guide dogs, our guide dogs can learn very quickly, especially if a client goes on like a, a, the same route a lot of, okay, let's go home and the dog will just take them home. And that explains a lot because dogs have great directional sense. And they also find that because they can sense this magnetic field, that dogs can actually take shortcuts to get from point A to point B much faster, especially like hunting dogs um, can take shortcuts to get to where they need to be because they have an excellent sense of direction. Now I wanna talk about, and lastly, to kind of wrap up the podcast, I wanna talk about communication because dogs do communicate. They actually have a varied language that we just don't know. So as people, we communicate differently than dogs. We communicate primarily vocally. Um, dogs communicate primarily through body language. Now they do communicate in other means as well, 
but people will tend to think their dog is being stubborn or obstinate or um, is stupid or dumb when that's really not the case. It's just that the dog doesn't understand you. I would say, you know, when I'm out in the field working with dog behavioral problems, 90% of those problems are a communication problem, not an actual behavior problem. It's that the person does not understand what the dog is trying to tell them, and the dog does not understand what the person is trying to tell them. So there's this miscommunication. So how do dogs communicate? Their communication can be broken down into visual and vocal. So with visual, the dogs can communicate through their body posturing and body language, whether um, it's hunched or relaxed or stiff. They communicate through their ears, the positioning of their ears, which we talked about earlier, and also their tail positions, the positioning of their tail. And if the tail is rigid or loose, that is a good indication of how a dog is feeling. Their eye gaze and whether it's a hard gaze or a soft gaze, their facial expressions. So whether they seem to look like they're um, smiling or whether they look, um, we call it stress lines. They have like stress lines on their face. Their facial expressions also clue us in into how they're feeling. But then on top of that, they will add some vocal communication. So this might be barking, growling, howling, sometimes whining or whimpering. If your dog's in pain, they might scream. If your dog is stressed or in pain, they might pant. And then sometimes if your dog is content, they might sigh. So if they close their eyes and sigh, they're content. But if they sigh and they're alert and wide awake, then they're just like, oh, I'm over this. They're getting kind of annoyed. So our dogs do communicate and they communicate in a wide variety of ways. Besides just this visual and vocal, dogs also use scent and hormones to communicate. So this is through anal gland secretions, you know, that nasty fishy smell when your dog scoots its butt along the carpet. Yeah, that's anal glands. And that is a huge way that dogs communicate to other dogs. Dogs will release pheromones, which will be a communication tool to other dogs. So it's not so much that our dogs don't know how to speak human. Dogs actually adapt very readily to humans. It's us who don't know how to speak dog. And that's where the problem lies, is that we are not educated in the dog language. Dogs have what's called calming signals. And these are great signals that let us know when a dog is distressed, when they're trying to give us an opportunity to, to fix something before they lash out, before there's a bite, before there's a growl. So calming signals mean that they are either feeling stressed or that they wanna come across to the other individual that they're no threat. So some calming signals are licking, lip licking. Uh, sniffing the ground is actually a calming signal and an avoidance behavior. They might turn their head away and not wanna look at the approaching object or whatever it is that is causing them some distress. They might have a very low tail wag and that's more of an appeasing gesture saying, hey, I'm no threat, I'm, I'm not gonna do anything. They might play bow, that's an appeasing gesture. If you wanna play, look, I'm no threat, let's play. They might have a play sneeze. So you might see this when dogs are playing and they start to sneeze or they shake after they're playing. That's a calming signal, that's okay. We were really rowdy and now we're calming it down. 
They might walk slowly or freeze if they're feeling uncomfortable or do a yawn. And yeah, dogs yawn when they're tired, but if it's the middle of the day, they just woke up from a nap, they don't seem tired, but there's something distressing around them and they're yawning, that's a calming signal. They might smile where they pull, and I'm not talking about like a happy grin smile, but where they pull their their lips back and show the teeth, and we call that smiling, not snarling, but they're actually smiling. That's a calming signal. Urinating, so if someone comes in the door and goes to pet your dog and they go down low and urinate, that's a calming signal. It means they're like, whoa, okay, I don't want any trouble. Or they might just lay down. So as you can see, just in our first episode, just being a dog is amazing. And dogs have amazing abilities that have been bred into them from us. And so in the following episodes, we're going to break down what this looks like for each um, category. And we're gonna use the American Kennel Club breakdown or um, groupings for that. And so each breed is gonna be grouped down into different categories. And we're gonna look at those categories, look at the dogs in that category. And then we're going to add on to the information that we now know about just what they experience being a dog. And we're now going to dive in deeper into what it means being a dog of that particular breed or that particular group. So I hope you stick with us and hope to that you join us next week to learn more about your dog.